Our scripture reading this morning comes from John's Gospel, and that from the first chapter. We'll be reading verses 24 through 34 this morning. And if you'd like to listen along as I read these, I do invite you to turn there with me to John chapter 1, verses 24 through 34. I'll begin reading. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Verse 25, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time in your word. May your word speak to us. We ask its author, God Almighty, to illuminate these truths from your word in our minds that we may understand it. Having understood it, Lord, may we have the strength to obey it. We ask for these two things today. May we be your student. May you be our teacher ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we'll let you know that we have been studying through the Gospel of John for a number of weeks now. Those are the four uh, first books, books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We call those the Gospels because they all basically tell the same story and the story of Jesus when he was here on earth. They tell that same story differently because they're four different individual authors. Two of them were eyewitnesses to what happened. They, they knew Jesus, saw him, listened to him. Two of them got their information from other eyewitnesses. But we've been studying this a number of weeks now and we have made it all the way to verse 24. The first week though, we read the end of the book first so we could find out what John was doing with the whole book. Sometimes you do that. You want to know what's happening before you start studying. So you read the end to find out how it goes. Well, we found out there in chapter 20, verse 30, he said, many other things did Jesus in the sight of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's a lot of things he didn't write about. But then he said in verse 31, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his point. And in putting together the 20 or so chapters of John, 
He's proving that point. He wants you to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus was God's son. And we started studying last week John's first witness that he calls in to support his claim that Jesus is God's son. And that last verse that we read, at the end of John's testimony, what does John the Baptist say? I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John is true to what he said he would do. He's gathering witnesses to prove his point, to strengthen that point, that argument, that this is Jesus, God's Son. Now perhaps a good place to start this morning, for those of us that were here last week, to kind of back up a bit and hook these two uh, train cars together so we can all pull in one motion, might be to perhaps explore an objection that someone may be able to raise from what we studied last week. We studied John the Baptist who spent his life really only making a big deal out of Jesus, his cousin, someone else. We, we finished off by reading what he says later where he says, I must decrease, he must increase. A delegation came from from uh, Jerusalem to ask who he was and what he was doing thinking he might be the Messiah and all he did was tell them there's nothing to see here I'm not the Messiah so this man who spent all his energy on promoting someone else Jesus in fact would say among women there is no greater among those born of women make sure I get that right there's no greater than John the Baptist so an objection might be To those who don't see things like the Bible spells them out. I don't know. You might actually have a case for among women, those that are born, the most pitied man ever born among women. If all he ever did was spend every bit of his life making a big deal out of someone else. Because really that's the way our world turns. We spend our lives making a big deal out of Number one, ourselves, whatever you can get out of it. We climb the ladder, we try to grab what we can get with both fists, and anybody that tries to get in the way of that, well, they're a bad person. Everyone should have these things. John gave up all of that. And this is one of those places where we can begin to actually see how John, the author, the apostle John, put all this together. Because didn't we say that everything would be answered by the first things he said? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's saying in verse 1 that Jesus is God's Son. So is John the Baptist's life a waste if in fact the man he spent his life promoting is actually God's Son? Now that's the best expenditure of your life. If he is who he said he was. So that objection we have answer for in this book. That is of course if you believe this book to be true. So let's pick up the story where we left off last time. Around verse 24. And here's how we'll organize our thoughts this morning. Again we're reading narrative. John's telling a story. So it's hard to find or arrange it according to points. Especially A nice, neat sermon with three points and a poem. Well, that's not how this is going to work this morning. In fact, the better way to organize this is to organize it it chronologically by the days that this this piece of narrative uh, takes up. You don't see this a lot in Scripture, but let me show it to you. In verse 29, look where it says, the next day. 
So John makes it real easy for us. What we see before verse 29, say starting in verse 19 through 28. Well, that's the first day. And then from 29 down to verse 43, where it says the next day. Well, from 34, uh, or from 29 rather, to uh, 42, that's day two. And then from 43 to the end of the chapter, you've got day three. So day three will be next week. Day two and the ending of day one is today. And last week we looked at the beginning of day one. Day one, day two, day three. That's how we'll organize. If you're making notes, that's easy to draw on the margin. And uh, you'll be able to keep order of what's happening. And I'll go ahead and give you what we'll call those days. Because they all have to do with the introduction of Jesus and his public ministry by John the Baptist. So day one, we'll learn here in just a moment, is he is here. Who's here? The Word who was from the beginning with God who was God. So just those three words, He is here. And then for day two, we'll just use two words. Behold Him. Get a good look at Him. That's day two. That's what we'll find out again here in just a moment. And then day three for next week is follow Him. Because that's basically what John, is, John the Baptist is doing here. He's going to introduce Him. And then all the followers that he had up to that point, he's going to say, now that He's here... Stop following me and start following him. And that will be the end of John the Baptist's ministry uh, as we know it. But let's look here in verse 24. Because that's where we have our new material for today. And you might notice in your translation of, of God's word, verse 24 is in parentheses. Got brackets uh, around verse 24. And that just means that this is an editorial note from the author, John the Apostle, telling us what's going on in between the lines. He says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So he's reminding us that this delegation who came from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? He's telling us now, because before he just called them Levites and priests from the Jews. Well, the Jews that sent them are Pharisees. It's a new piece of information. Pharisee means a purist. The Pharisee was a member of the strict religious legalistic party in Judaism after the exile. They were as starched as religious people get. They were purists. And make no mistake, they want to know exactly what he's doing, what he's saying, and why so many people are following him. So rather than return to Jerusalem to the Pharisees who sent them empty-handed with no answer because... John said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. Well, they say, well, what are we supposed to do? You've got to tell us something. And then he just says, I am a voice. That's all I am, is a voice for someone else. A voice crying in the wilderness, which was a prophetic reference back to the book of Isaiah. But then what people usually do when they don't know what to do, they'll settle for something like a technicality. And in verse 25... They have their final question. Look at it. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So that's a good question. They're there with an entire multitude of people outside the city in the wilderness as it's described, which just means an open place. The desert, you'd have to take food and water with you. There's very little of that there. 
But this mob of people have gone out to hear him preach and had been doing so. So they know he's not the Christ. They know he's not Elijah. They know he's not the prophet. They know he's a voice for one who's coming behind him. So the next question is, why are you baptizing? Why are you doing this? And they knew what baptism was, and John knew what baptism was, but why so much baptism, so many people? Why are they all doing this? It's a good question to ask. So, if we're going to be able to swallow what we're chewing on here, we need to ask ourselves the question, what do they mean by baptism? Because we baptize in this church. It's behind that curtain. It's a pool. Fill it up with water. And we'll have people get in with a nice robe. There'll be a minister or a deacon or perhaps a father who's going to immerse somebody under the water, bring them back up. And for us, that is an outward sign of an inward decision to follow Christ to become a Christian. So it, it, it's, it's a symbol. Well, it's not a lot different in this instance. In fact, water baptism was something that Jews did quite often, but not necessarily as a full body uh, baptism. They had ceremonial washings all the time. Before they would eat, they had to wash their hands. At the end of the day, they had to wash their feet. And there were many different ritualistic cleansings they did. If you're going on the Israel trip later, you will see, if you've got a good tour guide, he'll show you a lot of dugout looking holes with steps in them where people would cleanse themselves, especially before specific sacrifices. The priests would do this with their entire body, and there was very specific rules for how this was done. But most likely the type of baptism that this is signifying is, say, a convert's baptism, where you would have someone who's not a Jew come in, like, say, Ruth, who's a Moabite. She wanted to live under the law of Moses with the Hebrews as if she was born a Hebrew, but not. They would be baptized symbolically to wash and cleanse them for something brand new. And with John's message of repentance, you know what repentance is. You're going one way, stop going that way, turn around and go the other way. You've been sinful, stop being sinful anymore. The same reason for washing yourself before a sacrifice. It's to cleanse you. And if this does, I'll try to put it on the bottom shelf. Why do you bathe your children? Because they're dirty. They need to be clean. You mow the yard in the hot summer, at the end of the summer when it's dry. Not this year. It's never dry. Maybe we'll dry out by spring. I don't know. But when all the dust and dirt's all around and you get those nice rings around your neck where the, the dirt collects, you need a bath. You go home, you get that bath. You might sit down at dinner at the table and say something like, I feel like a new man. That's the idea of a washing, of a renewal, a, a, a hinge point, as if it were. So it makes sense that... The idea of repentance from a prophet reminding the people of the law they have broken. And to say that the Messiah is coming. You need to be baptized. Repent first, that's changing your mind. And be baptized, which is the outward sign of an inward profession. And people were doing this by the droves. Think of it that way. 
Whole groups, multitudes of people getting right with God. Confessing their sins as sinners. And submitting themselves to a public bath, as it were, symbolically, to rinse all that away. That's what's going on. And what does John say in response to, okay, you're not Christ, you're not the prophet, you're not uh, Elijah. Why are you doing this? And John simply says to them, I baptize with water. As if to say, guys, you should know this better than anybody else. It's just water. It's just a sign that I'm not really doing anything for them. I'm preaching, telling them the truth. Their heart is pricked. Their conscience is seared. They are repenting and they're being washed in water. And you might just think, well, I don't know if I make sense with that completely. Well, then there's the next thing that he says. But there is one coming behind me. As if to say, I just have water. Man coming behind me has something else. It's going to be different than we've ever seen. So John's response was short, somewhat incomplete. He says he baptizes with water just to say, it's just water, boys. That's, that's really all I'm doing. They knew about his message of repentance. Don't think that they hadn't taken it apart line by line. They knew what it meant, and they knew the response from the people as he preached with the law, and they saw their guilt. They are repenting and being baptized as a sign of their desire to be clean spiritually. But then John the Baptist seems to change the subject. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. You do know about baptism. You do know about repentance. You do know about sins and you do know about ritualistic cleansing. But there's something that you do not know. And that's a man who's right here, right now. You haven't met him yet. Now, when you look at this and it says, but among you... There is one among you that you do not know, standing among you. I think we should interpret that literally. Because some have said, well, he was there. He was in the vicinity. He'd been born and was approximately 30 years old. He had been in heaven. Now he's here. I think it's rather literally. He's standing there in the crowd. They don't know him yet. You've got to be careful with the word literally these days. It doesn't mean what it used to mean, Right? I was watching the news at the beach. It was last year. And I remember laughing my head off. Corey wants to know what I'm laughing at. Well, it was the local news. That's funny enough sometimes. And they had this lady who was a witness to a car accident. They give her the microphone. And she said she was so scared, her heart literally came out of her mouth. <laughs> and I thought, this word literally... I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> so when I say literally, I, th I think, though we can't say, it's not completely clear. He might be speaking in, uh, in words similarly, but I think he's actually standing there. But for some reason, he is not introduced at that moment. That wouldn't take place until the next day. So if we continue through this, who is he talking about? Who is the mystery man standing among them? It wouldn't be introduced until tomorrow. Verse 27. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And this again is basically the same confession he made earlier. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm not him. 
He ranks before me. Talking here about his sandal and his, the strap on it and how he's not, unwor- he's not worthy to untie it. Would you know that in Judaistic tradition, and this is something that these men from Jerusalem would know, maybe not everybody standing there, but they would know, that as far as teachers and students go, in the rabbinic tradition, there was written down parameters for how that these teachers who were not paid for what they did, you couldn't be paid for teaching, but they had lots of students. The students would compensate their teachers in other ways, like doing services for them, carrying their bags, uh, handling their scrolls and manuscripts. But there was in the tradition, the, the, the rabbinic traditions that there was only but so far that the student could be treated by his teacher he could not be treated like a slave but almost you say well what's the difference between a slave and almost a slave written down was that they were not to ask their students to wash their feet or take off their shoes that's the very thing that John the Baptist said I'm not worthy to take off his shoes. It's as if to say the students just got together and said, all right, we've got to draw the line somewhere. We'll take care of these guys, but to this point, John's saying, forget that point. This man's so greater than I, I'm not, I'm not worthy to wash his feet, take off his shoes. And then verse 28, another one of John the authors uh, giving us information between the lines these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing so end of day one John has said he is here but he hasn't introduced him verse 29 the next day very helpful he saw Jesus coming toward him and said I'm going to stop right there because we're not ready to read that just yet In fact, I would like to let the anticipation build. We know he's going to introduce Jesus for his public ministry, but let's just think our way through that a bit more. This could not be more dramatic, but then again, maybe not. I mean, how do you introduce the creator of the universe? We think of how uh, products are rolled out or the fit that, uh, say, Apple makes over a new phone. Or when we have uh, our president land at a place where he's going to be doing some campaigning. And all the trouble that we go to to make sure that the introduction is as grand as possible. This introduction might be about as grand as being born in a manger. I mean, it's not even inside the city. There's no band. There's no camera crew. There's a delegation there. If they're still there, they might have gone back to Jerusalem. But basically, it's one man walking up to another... And the one who everyone's eyes are fixed on introduces the man who's walking up. I don't know, but I don't think that's so grand of an introduction. But we're looking at this through the pages of Scripture. John's already set this up. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then verse 18, he did this so that we can see the Father. So this is huge. It doesn't get any bigger than this. But to make sure we've got some backstory, there's one thing I would like to do. You know, we did mention that John starts his book out different than the others. He says nothing about his birth. He says nothing about his boyhood. He actually says nothing about his baptism. So I think 
some of those things would, would help us get the most out of this introduction here on day two of John's three-day description of Christ's introduction. So turn with me to the book of Matthew. So that's the first gospel, and we're going to look in chapter 3. And if you have a translation other than the ESV, and it becomes cumbersome to read along as you listen to me read, then maybe you just listen instead of read. That's up to you. And of course, you're smart people. This homework here is available to you anytime you want to look at it uh, in your home on your own time. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is going to sound very familiar to where we've been the last couple of weeks. This is Matthew writing about the same story. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So far, so good. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, who said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Again, two for two. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now John didn't tell us about that. That's the John we know, isn't it? That's Sunday school class, John. Talk about his clothing and his his eating bugs. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all region about the Jordan were going out to him. That's a big group of people. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Here it is, confessing their sins. That's why the baptism makes sense. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to baptize, or coming to his baptism, whether or not they were part of it or just watching, sounds like they're part of it, he says, John the Baptist, You brood of vipers. Calls them snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What he's saying there is your behavior doesn't match your belief. We want to see some fruit. You say you believe there's no fruit. And then it gets worse. Verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to make from these stones or to raise up children from Abraham. That doesn't make you special that you happen to be a Hebrew. He can make Hebrews out of rocks if he wants to. Verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. What trees? The trees that aren't bearing any fruit. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. There, we're tracking with John again. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's the difference. John says, I baptize with water. This guy coming behind him will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Put that in your pocket. We'll use it later. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the reason why I wanted to have you see that account is to color up John's message of repentance. It was a very forceful message. I'm sure there's no way to deliver this message without all the veins in his neck showing, without perspiration and with shouting. Listen to that. The axe is ready to lay at the root of these unfruitful trees. The winnowing fan, which was kind of like a rake that they'd use to throw the grain into the air. And if there's any breeze, you hope there is, it'll carry away the the useless husk on the outside and the heavier grain will fall. 
And then when that's done, you get all that up, you use this fan to gather all that chaff in the direction of a fire where it's burned because it's worthless, it's no good. He's saying that these people who have a form of religion but no, no action to back it up are as useless as chaff or a tree with no fruit. And that's only good for one thing, to be chopped down or fanned into a pile and burned by a hot fire. I don't know if that's the way you like your preaching, but I think that's probably about the, the best example of fire and brimstone as you can get. And there's none of this is, is given over as a suggestion or an, an option. This is offered as a, as a command. Repent, for he's coming. The hour is late, the axe is ready, the winnowing fan is in his hand, and the fire is hot, is what John is, is saying. Okay? So keep those images in your mind of, of winnowing fan, an axe, and a hot fire. Okay? These are the words he uses to explain what it's going to be like when he finally gets here. Then look at 13 of Matthew 3, if you've still got it open. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John said, okay, I'll do it. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, here's where we see some difference in John's account and Matthew's. Only in that John is not recording everything Matthew does. So John is telling us down the tunnel of time what's happening on day one, two, and three. Well, weeks earlier than that, we see Jesus, who we learned from John. Nobody knows yet because John is saying there's one here that you don't even know. Well, he had come. And of course, John the Baptist knows him because it's his cousin. And he comes to be baptized too. And what is it that John says when Jesus comes to be baptized with everybody else? John protests. He says, this isn't right. You should be baptizing me, not the other way around. Something about John was uneasy about baptizing Jesus, who he didn't even know was the Christ yet. We're going to read that later. He knows him as his cousin, but he knows him enough to know that there's something different between me and everybody else in this river. This guy's as clean as any guy I've ever known. And it just doesn't seem right to baptize him. He should be the one baptizing us. If you're working on whose sin account is overcharged in relation to everybody else. It just doesn't work. If John had had his way, he wouldn't have baptized Jesus. Because it just didn't feel right. The only thing that seemed to gain John's consent was what Jesus said in verse 15. What did he say? Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What in the world does Jesus mean by that? Basically say, John, just go with it. It's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And I don't think at that moment John knew what he was saying. 
Because I don't know that most of us understand exactly what he's saying yet. John would in time, but that would be weeks later. Immediately the heavens opened after his baptism, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son are all at the same time in one place, thus confirming his identity and his mission. And that's when John finally understood this is the Messiah. Not by what Jesus said before baptism, but what his Father said and the Holy Spirit after the baptism. Now look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4. All this is for a reason. I know you're thinking right now, where in the world is he going with all this? Well, there's a point to it all. And if it all comes together like I hope it will, it'll be one big fat bow around this introduction of Jesus to the world he's here to save. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And if we keep reading, we we learn about the devil tempting him in the wilderness. That happened right after his baptism. So let's put all this together. From what we started reading this morning in John 1, where we finished somewhere around verse 28, 29, half of verse 29 where John is about to introduce Jesus to the world, that had been at least six weeks since John was baptized, or Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. You say, how in the world do you know it's six weeks? Where does it say that? Well, it doesn't necessarily say that, but we do know that Jesus left and fasted for 40 days. And if you take into account the distance between the place where he's baptized and the wilderness, best we understand it, you give a few more days, round it all out, it's about six weeks worth of time he would need to be away. So after his baptism, God speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, John understands now, this is the Messiah, Jesus leaves. He's gone as far as anybody, they don't know where he is, he's being tempted by the devil, and then he comes back. And it's at this point, these three days that John is describing begins. First day, he's there, but nobody knows him. Second day, he's introduced. Third day, John is pointing disciples in his direction. But verse 30, let's pick up there. We'll we'll move ahead, skipping part of verse 29. This is he of whom I said. So John's introduced him, but we're reading what he says after his introduction. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John has said, this is the guy I've been talking about the whole time. Verse 31. John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, even though he's his cousin, but he didn't know him as Messiah. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. That's the plan for the the unveiling. That's the rollout. Baptism, of all things. And John bore witness. Here's John on record, okay? I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. There you got it again. Not water, but with the Holy Spirit. So all of these pieces seem to come together. And there's that verse we started with, 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the Apostle John's first witness, John the baptizer, came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God when he saw the Spirit descend as God had told him in a vision that it would happen. 
How did he come to believe such a thing? How did he become certain that his cousin Jesus, think of that. How difficult is it for you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Would it be more difficult or less difficult if it turned out to be your own cousin? In fact, I think I'd have a harder time believing that the Son of God was somebody I was related to. He needed some form of a sign to make the difference between just a really good guy, better than anybody I've ever known, someone I wouldn't even be comfortable baptizing, but Jesus, which was a common name like Jason... That's the Son of God. That's how he came to believe. He was the creator of everything. I think there's more going on here. That it didn't dawn on John all in one piece. But over the course of those six weeks while Jesus is being tempted and fasting in the wilderness. John is learning by stages what he's been preaching for so long. All of these things I think are adding up in John the Baptist's mind. You may have noticed... I even mentioned it, that I left out that one part of verse 29. We covered the rest of the whole chapter before and after verse 29. Then we read an entire chapter of Matthew's gospel and two verses of another chapter. But let's go back and finally look at what it says in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Now in your mind, you can imagine He might not have seen him. Maybe the day before knowing he's there. But he's been gone for six weeks. John has continued to preach. And now is the time to introduce him. What does John say? Behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. That is profound. The the, the wording that he chose. Lamb of God. Thinking back on John's preaching. That fire and brimstone preaching. That people went back into town and said you've got to hear this. And they came out. Everybody's coming out to hear this fire and brimstone preaching. This man introduces someone that you... Really? We've been looking for this guy that you've been describing this way. With fire and brimstone. We're afraid to see his face. And you introduce a what? A lamb? Expected a lion, not a lamb. Think of it that way. If he's playing music here, this is a note John hasn't used yet. It's an unexpected note. That's not in your genre, John. What's going on here? Well, it's never my intention to be um, to be irreverent. Sometimes using illustrations. Someone might misunderstand that to be. This is not meant to be irreverent, but this is a good way to think about it, okay? You've heard that Sesame Street game. One of these things is not like the other, right? One of these things is not the same. One of these kids is doing his own thing. Now it's time to play that game. Which one of these is not the same? I'm not the only one who listened to that, right? (laughs) You remember how it worked? On the screen, it was divided into quarters. And they would put things up in the quarter. And one of the four didn't match. Listen to this. An axe. A fan to flame a fire. And then a lamb. Which one doesn't match? If it doesn't match, what does it mean? It has to mean something. 
Well, until the baptism of Jesus, every phrase of John's preaching had been suggestive of his coming in majesty and power, if not judgment. All of that was true. None of that is untrue. But here, something had changed John's mind. We don't hear about the axe or the fan or the fire. All we hear about is a Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. What is fire and a fan and an axe for? That's for punishing sin. That's for judging sin. That's for destroying those who are resistant and, and confessing their sin. But this is a lamb who's going to take away that sin. Does that make sense? This is not what they'd expected. All of Judaism for hundreds of years had been looking for a powerful king who could correct things through judgment. But what he's going to find out is this king is a servant king in the form of a sacrifice who's going to take the sin away rather than to judge it, but to judge it in a different way. Now, what did John know that we didn't know and we wouldn't know if we didn't have Matthew to help us know what's going on? What changed his mind, even at a time where it didn't completely make sense to John? I think it had to do with that baptism when he's standing there in the river. And he's looking at Jesus who he doesn't want to baptize because for some reason he doesn't feel it's right. He doesn't think it's right and it wasn't right. Why should the sinless son of God be standing in line with a bunch of sinners to be dunked under the water to symbolize what? Repentance. Why does Jesus need to repent? Truth is he doesn't need to repent. Which means he doesn't mean but need baptism. Baptism isn't fitting for him. It's not needful to him. So why would he do it? Well, what does he tell John? Let it be so for now. Modern parlance, just go with it, John. Why? For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What is fitting? A baptism is fitting. Why is a baptism fitting and what does that have to do with fulfilling all righteousness? You could translate that word fulfill as satisfy. If you've fulfilled your contract, what does that mean? You've satisfied your contract. How is the God of the universe going to fulfill righteousness for this planet? All the people on the earth are one day going to actually start behaving and do right? Or is he going to send his son to do it for them as a sacrifice? So you tell me, is it fitting for the man who would die between two thieves, two people who did deserve death, but him in the middle who did not deserve death, dying in the place of the world who would die if he didn't die for them? Is it fitting that he line up in a river full of sinners, he himself a sinless man? Does that fulfill all righteousness? Does that make sense? I think it makes perfect sense. How is Jesus going to save the world? By taking your punishment for you that he himself does not deserve. John looking at this for six weeks while Jesus is gone, his tune changed. Not he's here with his axe and with his fan and with his fire. Get out of the way lest you be destroyed. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now, if you need a little bit more sneak peek into the future, turn over to chapter 3. This is John chapter 3. And this is a conversation he'll have with Nicodemus. And I want you to look at the world's favorite verse. It's their favorite verse because it's printed everywhere and they know it real good. And if it's on a quiz, they at least know one verse, right? Well, it's the church's favorite verse too. Look at John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How are you going to do that, Lord? Because you promised sin would be punished with death in the Garden of Eden. Look at verse 17, probably one of the most ignored verses in all the Bible, just because it happens to be behind the most popular verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How are you saved? By Jesus being what you could never be. And anybody who knew anything standing there in that river knew that they could take a bath, but eventually they'd need another one. They can be forgiven of their sins, but there will be more sins they'll need to be forgiven for. You can say you're sorry in your marriage, but you'll need to say it again before too long. None of us are perfect, but there was one who was. And him standing in the, in the river to be baptized for repentance doesn't make sense. The world wants to say, this is not fair. You shouldn't do that to him. Even so, hang him on a cross and let him bleed dry for the world having never sinned. Is that fair? No, that's not fair. But that's the way his father chose for our redemption. Our salvation comes through faith in a sinless sacrifice. The Lamb of God who came here to take your and my sin away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these terms, these themes, for the drama of John's gospel. The man you loved closer to you perhaps than any other. Lord, may these thoughts bounce around in our mind to convince us of what he was convinced of. I pray for the person in this room perhaps mulling over, pondering these very audacious claims that a man was the Son of God, a man who was related to another man named John the Baptist. But Lord, we'll learn that that man was born of a virgin, sent from heaven, God himself, to take our place as our punishment for sin. Lord, may the truth of these claims win over the unbeliever, that they too, like John and John the Baptist, would, would confess Jesus is the Son of God. We thank you for our time together studying your word today. And as we sing and as we're dismissed, Lord, I ask that you will encourage us in truth. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful to be in your house. Thank you for each one that's chosen to be here this morning. We thank you for a, a Thanksgiving day that's been set aside. It, it's, it has come and gone, but Father, my prayer is that our Thanksgiving will not cease, that it will be on our lips when we get up in the morning and when we go to bed at night. Father, you are the ultimate source of all our blessings. Father, thank you for the promise of eternal heavenly home.
2 Corinthians 4.18 states, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is the temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Help us, Father, to keep focus on that eternal home by focusing on you. Father, we want to lift up the uh, names in our bulletin that need our prayers, that need physical healing, that need comfort. We just pray that you will put your hand upon these individuals. And, Father, we lift up our mission of the week, uh, the Gideons. We thank you for this organization. We thank you for the work they do worldwide, placing Bibles uh, so that people will read your word. And we just thank you for this organization. We pray for uh, uh, the, their needs, their financial needs, and whatever it might be, that they will continue to uh, place these Bibles throughout this world of ours. Father, go with us now as we leave this house of worship. Guide and direct us in the coming days until we meet again. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.